I'm Rob Trusinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. Our guest today is Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst with Real Clear Politics. And we're here to talk, of course, about the midterm election. Now, being a little outside the mainstream, my idea of talking about the election is to wait a week till the dust settles and we actually have some, some real information and some real numbers and some real data. And that's one of the reasons why I've got Sean on here, because that's his his bailiwick, his specialty. And I really want to make sure because we get these sort of impressions, uh, you know, us commentariat types, we get these impressions about what's going on in the election. And, uh, you know, these are subjectively formed impressions and they're not necessarily accurate. And I so I want to get a sense of, of how much of this is actually supported by the data. So so thanks for coming on, Sean. Yeah, oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so the first thing I want to do, I just want to go through some some of the lists of some of these impressions that we have and sort of check to see whether how much of this is borne out by the actual election results. So the first one is, was there a Kavanaugh effect in the Senate? That is, you know, did the Kavanaugh hearings actually help Republican prospects and help them keep the Senate? Um, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> good question to lead with. Um, I, I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, we saw... Uh, Donald Trump's job approval plummeting beforehand. People forget before we were talking about Kavanaugh's nomination, uh, we were talking about Donald Trump, you know, kind of uh, dismissing John McCain's funeral yeah. about the uh, Cohen uh, and Manafort results. And so it changed the conversation. And if you watch the trend line on Trump's job approval, it kind of dips down from 44 to 40 percent. And then it spikes back up to, to the 45 percent he ended up with. Uh, in the exit polls. So in these dark red states, uh, there's really not much doubt, in my mind at least, it helped. We saw a three-point race in West Virginia, three-point mm -hmm. race in Montana. Those races were polling much more heavily, much more strongly Democratic uh, okay. before Kavanaugh. And of the, the Democrat, of the red state Democrats, as they call it, the Democrats who were in Republican-leaning states who voted against Kavanaugh, uh, did they all lose? Or I think one of them won, but several of them lost in, in races that had been very narrow and very tight beforehand. Yeah, Tester ended up winning by about three points. That's but right. Before yeah. Kavanaugh, our polls showed him up like eight or nine points. Now, the, the trick is maybe those races were going to close anyway because they're red states. Uh, and maybe Kavanaugh was just the catalyst when, you know, who knows what, maybe the caravan would have been the catalyst right, otherwise. Right. Um, but, you know, inferring causation is always tricky. But from the evidence we have, it looks like I would say, yeah, uh, the Kavanaugh effect was real. And I, I saw it mostly in the fact that before Kavanaugh, we were talking a lot about the enthusiasm gap between Republican voters and Democratic voters. Democratic voters were highly motivated. They were going to go out to the polls. They were going to turn out in large numbers. It wasn't really clear that was going to happen. I think, that, you know, there was enthusiasm among the Republicans, but not the same jump in enthusiasm that there had been since the last election. And I think Kavanaugh had some impact on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, it, it was just a conversation changer. I, I tweeted out when, when Kennedy repealed, you know, the, the, if the GOP had to choose one thing to talk about in September and October, it would be judges, uh, because yeah. that's something that unites the Trumpy base of the GOP uh, with the establishment base of the GOP and gets establishment Republicans thinking like Republicans again and not like never Trumpers. Yeah, and, um, and as someone who's a bit more of a never Trump type myself, I don't use that term, but as someone who's more on that side of things, there was this sort of era of good feelings that we had for a couple of weeks there where we were all on the same side again. 
That, that's exactly right. It, it is one, you know, it, it's not talking about trade. It's not talking about whether we should have a realist or an idealist foreign policy. You know, it, it's talking about judges, which is something that if you're a Republican, that's one of the reasons you are a Republican. It's kind of like health care is for Democrats. And, and it's specifically um, an argument to go vote for your senator. Yes, yes. It, it it probably helps helps to explain some of the divergence we saw in the results in the Senate versus the House. And that's a great segue to the next thing I wanted to bring up, which is the House. Now, the Democrats were expected to make gains in the House. I don't think the gains, this is, I wouldn't call this a wave. Now, there's that contentious issue of what constitutes a wave. But this is, you know, 30, 30 odd seats is closer to what we expected the Democrats to gain. But I did see a, a well, I was personally surprised because I'm in the 7th District in Virginia uh, where Dave Bratt was our Congress or, or is still until January as our congressman. I did not expect him to be in any danger at all. And he was actually defeated by the Democrat. And that, I think, was indica- indicative of a wider thing, which is the suburbs being turned off, I think, by Trump. I, is that impression correct? Because it, yeah. it was the south suburbs of Richmond, so Henrico and Chesterfield County, the less, the more suburban areas of the district that 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 seemed to move against Brat. Yeah, that's actually uh, we lived in uh, Richmond before we moved to Columbus. Yeah. Actually, we lived in the near West End and then in Chesterfield County. So I know that I know that well. Yes, yeah, so you know the seventh uh, district was created to reelect Eric Cantor forever. Yeah, yeah, and then he got more interested in being the majority leader than constituent services, and I think it kind of came back bite him. Um, but, you know, Brat, it's a couple things. You know, Brat was probably too conservative mm-hmm. for that district. Uh, you know, he ran as an unapologetic conservative in a district that, you know, was was more establishment conservative. Um, the second thing that happened is that, uh, you know, Trump is not a suburban Republican. He's someone, you know, if you look at Romney, McCain, to a lesser extent, Bush, Dole, like those are all Republicans who are targeted at the suburbs. What you have with Trump is someone who's targeted more at the GOP's rural base. Um, and just like I think McCain and Romney turned off some of the some of the voters in rural areas, didn't turn out to vote. Trump does the same for suburban Republicans. And so, yeah, it was it was an absolute GOP killing field um, in suburban districts across the country. Do you see that as, as more of a change from 2016? In terms of him having more of those suburban Trump having more of those suburban voters in 2016 compared to this year, or you think it's just in the off year, the the, the non presidential election year, where you see the effects more in those districts that is just making the margins. Well, what you see is that you have a bunch of districts where Republicans had traditionally run strongly that voted for Clinton in 2016, uh, but decided to keep their GOP member of Congress. They split their ballots. We can ask why. Maybe it's that the Democratic congressional candidates there didn't have much money, didn't have a lot of name recognition, and that changed this year. Or it might just be they decided not to split their tickets. Um, but that's if you look at the the 23 Republicans in districts that Clinton won, um, there are three, four left today, and one of them is kind of iffy. Um, that's half of the Democratic gains right now is just districts that Clinton won um, in 2016. And the rest are Clinton are districts that are, are largely districts that were within a few points of the national margin. You know, that that reminds me a lot of the big 2010 Tea Party wave, 
because people talked about, oh, you know, all the different causes of it. But one of the causes, and I saw this in the fifth district, which is around Charlottesville, Virginia, was that was a, a, a district that had elected Tom Perriello, a Democrat. He was actually a Democrat who used to work for a George Soros uh, NGO. So it's like, you know, the ultimate sort of package there. But it, it elected him by a margin of 800 votes in 2008, you know, during the, the when when Barack Obama was elected. And that was a case where you this is a district that was naturally going to snap back uh, to the Republicans right. with that narrow, you know, the winning, winning by such a narrow margin in such a good Republican year. Uh, and I think a lot of the Tea Party wave was that it was places where uh, uh, conservative, moderate conservative Democrats had been elected in what were Republican leading conservative districts and where they were just a little too out of place with their district. And a lot of that was sorted out in 2010. And that's how you got the wave. So what you're seeing is what we have here is a similar thing with people who got elected in Hillary Clinton voting districts, but who were Republicans. And that sort of ideological sorting out is happening with those with those seats. Yeah, Nate Silver had a really great piece uh, after the 2010 elections, which was um, he called it an aligning election. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that's right. You saw a lot of these kind of traditionally Democratic districts at the local level that were Republican at the presidential level, uh, that everything just lined up places like southeast Oklahoma and central uh, Tennessee. And like you said, the fifth district, Virgil Goode got kind of swept out. Uh, and he won the, the greatest uh, person to be representing Charlottesville, uh, got swept out in 2008 and Perriello got swept out a few years later. And I think we're seeing kind of the same thing here. There, there were a lot of these districts that are just moving out from underneath Republicans. Uh, and the 2018 elections just confirmed that movement, at least for now. Well, the other aspect of this, too, is, is there's been some movement in the Midwest as well. You know, that one of the surprises of 2016 was Trump winning a couple of Midwestern states, Michigan, Wisconsin, places like that, that, that have traditionally, well, let's put it this way. They They've traditionally voted Democrats, but it was partly because they have a lot of blue collar whites who are in de unions, right? And de unions always vote for the Democrat, right? So the surprise in 2016 is those blue collar whites voted for a lot of them voted for Trump, and he won these Midwestern states that he normally you wouldn't expect a Republican to do well in. Uh, and are those Midwestern states moving back? I know my my friends in, in Illinois are in despair because there's a, a major move. Uh, to the left and to, towards the Democrats there. But is the Midwest moving back sort of more uh, away from Trump? And that could, which would have a lot of implications for 2020. Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful uh, with that. Like in 2010, Rob Portman run the, won the Ohio Senate race by 15 points. Uh, and yet Barack Obama won the state handily uh, in 2012. But, you know, and Scott Walker won in Wisconsin by four points in 2010 and Barack Obama won the state. You can kind of walk through them. Uh, and right. see that result. The tooth, if you if you look at what happened this year, you know, Debbie Stabenow won by six points against a pretty weak opponent. Um, he was hyped by Republicans and beloved by Republicans, uh, but he didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and she won right. by six. You know, Sherrod Brown won by six points against an underfunded Republican. The Republicans held the governor's mansion here. Um, you know, Scott Walker lost, but it was by a point, not by some of the outsized margins we saw in 2010. So, you know, I, I think if Donald Trump runs with a 44, 45 percent job approval, we're going to see numbers that reflect what we see today in the Midwest. But if he's a little bit more popular, I think the Midwest is going to be ground zero again.
Well, another question I had about these, speaking of the, the Midwest and all that, is the effect on the state houses, because that was one of the big stories of, of Barack Obama's presidency, is that they won two, you know, he won two presidential elections, and things looked great on the top level. But when you went down from that, the, the Democrats really got wiped out in state houses. They lost something like 2,000 seats in state houses across the country. So the, you know, the, and it's the typical sort of thing. The top level of the party does well, and it looks great, but underneath, your fund of new politicians coming up through the state houses is being cut off. Uh, is something like that happening with the Republicans, or to what extent is that happening? Because I know there were some moves in state houses. No, and that's one of the more interesting things about this election is, you know, when you look at the House, it was a tremendous outcome uh, to sound kind of Trumpy, uh, tremendous for Democrats. Um, the 39 House seats is more, which is what it looks like, is more than anyone expected they would win. Um, but when you get to governorships, when you get to Senate seats, um, it's a lot more equivocal. And so when you look at the state houses, they flipped, I think, six chambers, um, picked up a couple of trifectas where they'll have the House, mm -hmm. uh, Senate, and Governor. But they picked up about 330 um, state legislative seats, which is below the average, actually. The average for a midterm election is about 400 and, and change. So not the kind of wipeout for the Republicans down ticket that you saw for Democrats in 2010, where they lost over 700 seats. Right, right. So my, my friends in Illinois are in despair, but that's really just Illinois. It's not a broader <laughs> thing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, look, Illinois is a Democratic state. Uh, unless the Republicans figure out how to get the Chicago suburbs back, it's, you know, you can't win that state with downstate voters. Right. Um, Too few of them. And it's just, yeah. Now, the other question, though, uh, you're talking about it being a good, relatively good turnout or outcome for Democrats in the House, but not necessarily so everywhere else. The other big story is what about the progressive candidates? the ones who are sort of far on the left and pushing the Democratic Party farther to the left. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won in her district, but that's a heavily Democratic district where there's really no challenger. Uh, what about some other ones like Beto O'Rourke didn't make it in Texas uh, and Andrew Gillum may or may not have made it, but probably didn't make it uh, in Florida. How did those turn out? Uh, is this like a, a good news for, uh, for the progressives not taking over the Democratic Party? Yeah, I mean, I think if you'd seen Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum win, and certainly uh, if O'Rourke had won, um, you would you would have seen a cry for 2020, like, look, you know, B Bernie can win. I mean, in <laughs> effect. Um, well, that's what they've been. I mean, ever since the last election, a lot of Democrats have been talking themselves in the idea. If only we'd run Bernie, it would have turned out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, Bernie is one of the more popular politicians in America, but I guarantee after he gets a billion dollars worth of ads dumped on his head about the tax hikes he wants, that that's going to go away. You know, the, the problem the Democrats have now is that they have this coalition of urban liberals, um, moderate suburbanites, uh, and then the remnants of the white working class that vote Democrat, and then non-white voters, uh, Hispanics and African-Americans, and none of their interests align perfectly and some of them don't align at all um and so if you run a candidate who wants to increase taxes by a substantial amount to pay for health care when a large portion of your coalition doesn't like taxes and already has outstanding health care it's it's a tough sell yeah. um and i think that's kind of what gillam ran into i think he did boost turnout uh you know but it's just it's tough to get suburbanites to sign on for that, even against someone like DeSantis. Yeah. And 70 million dollars for Beto O'Rourke in Texas does seem to have the effect of shifting some state races. 
but but not actually pushing it over the line for him in, in the Senate race. Um, I, I think the effect of money on elections, by the way, is one of the things that's is totally overestimated. There's, you always had people pouring huge amounts of money, millions of dollars into some district thinking, oh, well, with, with this giant budget, we can we can flip it. And the district just the district votes the way the district votes. I mean, they have uh, the ideological fit of the can the, the personality and the ideological fit of the candidate is way more important than the budget. Yeah. So I agree that money in politics is is overrated. It's kind of a log, but there's a caveat for 2018. So it's kind of a logarithmic relationship, mm. like going from 10,000 to 100,000 has a huge effect. But going from 100,000 to 200, eh, you know, going from 100,000 to a million has a huge effect. But one million to two million. Eh. Um, and so uh what, what made this election interesting in the House and why I think you see the differential between the House results versus the Senate and state houses is you saw a large number of candidates in kind of marginally Republican districts that hadn't seen a candidate, a Democratic candidate in a long time, suddenly have, you know, two, three million dollars outraising the GOP incumbent. And in that situation, it probably makes a two or three point difference. And if you look at some of these close, some of these races in you know Illinois 14 and places like that, it's, the money really might have made a difference there. Um, but generally speaking, I agree the impact of, of money uh, is overrated. You could you could have given Beto you know 140 million dollars, doubled it, and it probably wouldn't have changed the outcome that much. There's a steep law of diminishing returns there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, and that leads me back to one last thing, which is uh, about the election, which is. Like I said, everybody's trying to come up with impressions about, you know, what happened here in the election and, and how, how did it work out and who did it favor? Uh, and I, I thought it's interesting what you're saying about the Democratic coalition, you know, because we've been so focused, I think, for the last two years, those of us on the right have been focused on how fragmented the Republican coalition is. And we forget that the Democratic Party is a coalition, too, and they're pretty fragmented. You have the Clintonites and the Bernie bros, and, and those people don't always get along and they have their trade-offs. And if you move too far to one side, you alienate people on the other side. But I, I think in the context of that, especially these internecine squabbles we have within each party, there's a lot of people trying to interpret the election in a way that gives the mandate of the people to their side of that squabble, right? So you, if, if you're if you're an anti-Trump Republican like me, you want to interpret it as, oh, well, Trump is, is, is alienating people in the suburbs. And, you know, this is showing we're going to pay the price. If you're a progressive, you want to point to the progressive victories and say, if you're not a progressive Democrat, if you're a conservative Democrat. So the big danger is over-interpreting the election results. Yeah. Everybody's going to claim this as the mandate of the people is on our side. But there's a lot of other factors that maybe have just as much impact in these particular races. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of saying that if you think the winning coalition for your side validates your entire worldview, you're probably doing it wrong. And that's how most people do it. You know, so after 2013 or after 2012, the establishment Republicans said, hey, you know, they need to moderate on social issues and need to be, uh, you know, pro immigration reform, diversify the party. And Trump just kind of proved everything they're wrong. Um, and I think there's a, a similar uh, danger going forward. You know, if you go back to 2000, in 2001, uh, two really uh, good analysts, uh, Rui Teixeira, John Judas, wrote a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. Um, and, you know, the, the thesis was that we were seeing a delayed realignment, but that it was arriving now. 
uh, and Democrats were going to be the dominant party. And then Republicans won 2002, 2004, 2010, 2014, and 2016. You know, the parties have basically now split elections 50-50 since that book was published. And that's the norm in American politics, is that we kind of go back and forward. But uh, if you look at elections, going back to 1856, Republicans have won almost exactly half of the elections uh, since their party was founded. And, and that's just how we work here. Well, I think that it's an efficient election market in the sense that when there's an opportunity, when when one side starts to get too big a majority, the other side adapts its policies and its tactics to to win back part of that majority. So the, you're, you're, the people are competing over the margins uh, and the issues change and the coalitions change. But you know, if it gets if it gets too far out where one side is winning landslide election after landslide election, it's a market for people's votes and the market is going to readjust in a way. I mean, I, I, it's not a perfect analogy to markets, but I think there's something there that 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 it captures. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, if you look, you know, it, it, with Bush, there was a growing split over how to handle the war in Iraq and Democrats nominated someone who was a against the war over someone who was for it, and he poached a lot of Republican voters. Then you had someone who was spending, you know, bigly, as our president again might might say, um, alienating suburban Republicans, and Republicans, you know, you had the Tea Party that got a lot of those suburbanites back. And then you can go on, you know, then Obama kind of leans forward on cultural issues. Uh, Republicans poach white working class voters while Obama is taking in more uh, upscale Republican voters. And so it's the same dance we've been having uh, for over 150 years where, you know, we're, we're a large, diverse country. And that almost that inherently means that your actions are going to alienate voters from the other side, absent some kind of grand unifying event like 9-11. Um, you know, everything you do is and, going, as and, I like to say, hmm? and, that, and 9-11 wasn't unifying for as long as people like to remember. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> President Bush's job approval was back down to kind of a more human 60 percent within a year. Um, but um you know, I like to say coalitions are like water balloon. If you step down on one side, another side pops up, uh, and sometimes they explode. <laughs> well, that's that's a good segue to the, what I want to talk about in sort of the second half here. Uh, but first, uh, you're listening to Salon of the Refused. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can find us at Patreon uh, under Salon of the Refused, or follow up for more information at the Trzinski Letter. Trzinskyletter.com. You don't need to spell that. I'll have a link for that uh, associated with this recording. All right. So that brings me to the question, all this questions about coalitions and, you know, the the 50-50 split in the country. And that leads to various ways in which people are complaining about, you know, they like to complain whenever somebody loses an election. They like to come up with complaints about the legitimacy of elections in this country. So I want to run over a couple of those issues. Well, first of all, what's going on in Broward County? What is the matter (laughs) with Broward County? Uh, This is the second time in, in less than 20 years they've been sort of at the epicenter of ballot problems. You know, the truth of the matter is this stuff happens all the time in elections. Mm-hmm. Elections have error margins, and we only pay attention uh, when it favors uh, when it's a close election. Um, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, after 2000, it's not like we didn't do anything. We, we took steps to try to alleviate problems. There's no hanging chads in Florida any, <laughs> anymore. 
uh, because those voting machines have been sold on eBay. I actually own one. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they don't use them anymore. Be- best gift from a wife ever was that that voting machine. Um, but, you know, it, it's it, part of it is incompetence. I, I, I actually kind of subscribe. I can't remember the name of the law, but, you know, never ascribe to malice what can easily be explained by incompetence. Um, I, I think that's most of what's going on in Florida um, in, is that they have an incompetent elections administrator and, and administering elections for these massive, diverse counties is, is tough. You know, whereas yeah. these kind of smaller, more rural counties with two precincts, it's, yeah. it's not that big a deal. Yeah, I also think that, you know, one of the virtues of our system is local is federalism and localism and the fact that you have these county governments that have their own systems. And as much as I would like to say somebody needs to take Broward County into receivership and and uh, and, you know, come and, and run things for them. The system doesn't really allow that, and it's, it's probably best in the long term that the system doesn't allow that, that you have the local institutions that can't just be you know, taken over from outside. Uh, but yeah, it does lead to some unwanted drama uh, now and again. Uh, and that, but that leads us to the question of, of, so the two big things that people are complaining about these days in terms of saying, oh, well, elections are legitimate, is there's vote fraud. And my view is vote fraud is something that, in my experience, is vote fraud is something that maybe makes a difference here and there on the margins if you can prove it happens at all. But it's not really, you know, it's not something that if, that you could say undermines the integrity of the elections as a whole. Yeah, I, I think it's tough um, because vote fraud's hard to detect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I actually remember in 2004, uh, you know, my, my grandfather uh, was living with my parents and, and you know, had dementia. Uh, and the Democratic uh, canvassers came by to their house all the time trying to get him to vote. And they were like, look, he, he, he cannot vote. But there's a little Virginia uh, going to the poll, voting in Virginia, then going to the voting booth and voting in his name. He he, you know, had block sig- literature letters, so it was a very easy signature to forge. And I would never, I would have a zero percent chance of being caught. I didn't do it. Um, but <laughs> the point is that, like, if I had done that, it would never be caught. We would count. We would look at that and say Fred Schneider cast a, a legitimate ballot. All, all alternatively, you could request an absentee ballot and send it in in his name. And again, very difficult to catch. So we don't know how much fraud there is. At the same time, I think some of these claims of, of 2 million, 3 million illegal ballots cast um, are grossly uh, overblown. Um, I, I think it's a you know more, much more manageable number, probably. Yeah. Now, the other big claim, uh, this one more, so the vote fraud more comes from the right because they see these close elections. They see people doing recounts in Broward and they get all, they get all suspicious and they, you know, they, they listen to radio talk show hosts or whatever who have the whiteboard out and are showing all, you know, spinning the conspiracy theories. On the left, the, the big cry now is gerrymandering, that we've gerrymandered the House and that's why it's out of, out of whack with the house, quote, quote unquote House popular vote. And I know that that probably makes your brain hurt to, to say that. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, the House is 435 separate elections. There is no national popular vote in, in the House. But the idea that, 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 we've, that Republicans have gerrymandered everything in 2010 so that they're winning more elections than they should in the House, uh, that's also something. That, but I've also been reading that in this election, you're seeing that effect fade a little bit because, you know, you have the 2010 census. You redistrict based on the 2010 centrist, census. But 18, eight years later... People move, 
people's views change and the districts start to sort of get away from what you, they were. I mean, the seventh district in Virginia, for example, they get away from what they were gerrymandered to do. Uh, that's that is exactly right. Uh, you know, the efficiency gap is a gerrymandering metric that gets a lot of attention. It was before the Supreme Court, but actually, the original efficiency gap paper, the conclusion was that these things are unstable, and by the end of the decade, they tend to break. Uh, the gerrymanders tend to break down, uh, and that's exactly correct. Um, you know, to, the 2000 redistricting was something of an outlier in that regard, uh, with things kind of holding, even though Democrats took the House. But look, if you, if you look, it looks like Democrats are going to get, you know, about 53 percent of the popular vote and about 53, 54 percent of the seats in Congress. It's going to line up nicely, um, despite this supposedly horrific Republican gerrymander. Yeah, yeah. Although the House popular vote is a, is a, like a really misleading thing because, yeah. for example, you have all sorts of races in which there's no Republican running or no Democrat running. So, you know, there are no Democratic votes and no Republican votes in those districts. So you're not really getting a, a proxy for how many people are Republicans and Democrats in those areas. Exactly. But, but you know, the theory of gerrymandering is that, you know, Democrats could have the, the constant number was, you know, look, Democrats could win, could, could win the popular vote by as much as 7 percent and not take the House. Um, and that was ascribed to gerrymandering. And yet Democrats are going to win the popular vote by about 7% uh, and have a pretty nice workable uh, House majority. Uh, you know, so I just think this stuff is, is really pretty overblown. Yeah, I mean, we have elections that work in this country. Now, that leads me to the last issue, which is some people saying, well, the real problem is that the House is too small. We need to expand the House. Uh, you know, have 600, 700 members in the House. What do you think of that idea? So the idea is, you know, because what originally was, what, 30,000 voters per district, now it's 700,000 voters per district. So the idea is realign it back closer to that. So this is actually one of my, like, weird hobby horses. I think if you're an elections analyst, everyone has to have one. Uh, and, and this is mine. I, I do think we should increase the size of the House. Um, you know, the British House of Commons has around 670 members, and it seems to function reasonably well. I don't see why we can't do that here. And there's, you know, a couple of advantages. Like you said, the original plan was for the House to have about, you know, 30,000 to 100,000 members per district. And we're up at about 800,000 now. Um, so it makes it more responsive. The other thing is that it actually has some benefits in terms of representation and in terms of gerrymandering. If you look at states, there tend to be fewer extreme gerrymanders because it's hard to gerrymander uh, smaller numbers because you can't stretch the districts out as much. Um, and you're just naturally going to end up with more minority representation in Congress, because you're just naturally going to draw uh, more minority majority districts, which if you buy into descriptive representation that we should have a Congress that looks like America, um, you know, that that's going to be a natural side effect of this. Uh, you see, my I'm, I'm less convinced about that, because I, I think the problem is when you get to have six, seven hundred members of Congress or, or, or some people talked about a thousand members of Congress, each one becomes less significant and I, in and of himself, his vote and his influence and all that. And I think it, my concern is it would create sort of an incentive, even more so than we have today, to have somebody like an Eric Cantor, who starts to be focused on, well, getting reelected to my district isn't very much, but what would be really interesting would be to get into the House leadership and rise up to the House leadership and someday become Speaker of the House. And they become more beholden to the leadership of the House than to people uh, back in their own districts. And I would be concerned that with a larger group of people, 
where there's more scramble for influence of to become someone in the house out of you know one out of 800 or 700 people there's more of a scramble to do that and maybe more dependence on the political leadership of the house than on the constituents back home So that's a possibility. Um, but, you know, we've had this 435 member house since 1930, and we've seen all varieties of party strength. We, we've seen the 50s where the parties were relatively weak. Uh, we've seen today where the parties are pretty strong in Congress. So I don't know that there's really uh, this relationship that you point out. Uh, what you probably end up with um, is kind of informal caucuses becoming more popular within the House. And I think, you know, it, it would be a good thing to have more blue dog Democrats in the House, which I think you get with something like this. Um, you know, you get more uh, minority memberships. And so the Congressional Black Caucus has a larger uh, or the House Freedom Caucus. You know, the, I think it's actually might be more unruly. Uh, because of this. <laughs> well, let's hope so. But, you know, I, I think there is a, a similar, we, we, we talk, ended our discussion about the election by saying, you know, there's a lot of hubris can go into trying to interpret the results and all that. I also think that, you know, you have to know, since this is your hobby horse, that expanding the house is vanishingly unlikely to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think part of it is because all these, somebody said, we are all process arguments are dishonest. That is, every, yeah. you know, and, and, concern about vote fraud, gerrymandering, expanding the House, people's interest in these things tend to wax and wane depending on whether they think their party will benefit from it or their party will suffer from it. And that's why these things have a tendency not to happen. Yeah, that's Barone's law. Um, oh, yeah, Michael, Michael Barone. Barone. Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's a good law. Um, I think it's generally right, which is why uh, when I talk about changes to process, I kind of force myself into a rule that it would take place 10 years in the future right. um, so that you don't know who benefits. So like if Democrats, if there's straight faced arguments for increasing the size of the Supreme Court, have it take effect 10 years from now. Uh, and if you lose interest in it, then you're probably not doing it for the best reason. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good way, way to wrap things up. Uh, again, this has been Sean Trendy, uh, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics. Uh, you've been listening to Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Trusinski. If you've been enjoying this conversation, you can uh, support us at Patreon. Look under Salon of the Refused. Uh, and you can always find more of my writing and more of my commentary at the Trusinski Letter, Uh Sean, thanks for talking to me and thank you for listening. <laughs>